Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about international development, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has over 35 years experience as an international business and development professional. And he's worked all over the world from Angola to Afghanistan, Botswana to Brazil and South Africa to South Korea. But before I introduce you to Adam Saffer, the CEO of Gateway Development International, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter, and it features career advice and job-seeking tips, as well as unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals like Adam who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Adam Saffer, the CEO of Gateway Development International. It's a consulting and impact investment firm focused on development finance, technology, and infrastructure in frontier and emerging markets in Africa and Asia. Adam started out his professional journey as a senior field engineer providing oil well diagnostic services to public and private oil companies. He then got his MBA from Harvard Business School and pivoted into management consulting before eventually moving into the U.S. government as a project officer in the Gambia in sub-Saharan Africa. Over the years, Adam has worked as the CEO or a management consultant with an eye on developing market-led corporate growth strategy, raising commercial and concessionary funding, and building human capital in underperforming companies. He's worked in a whole variety of sectors in international development, including infrastructure, financial services, construction, renewable energy, tourism, and agriculture. Adam, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am indeed. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Andrea. It is a pleasure to have you. And I'm curious, what do you all brew these days in the Saffir household? What kind of coffee gets you going in the morning? Strong, I would say. We're talking about rocket fuel. But these days, my wife constantly chooses different types of coffees from different parts of the world. We do like Hawaiian Kona coffee and we do like Brazilian coffee. 
And now I think what we're drinking today is from Guatemala. Oh, lovely. I find that I could be totally wrong. Are Guatemalan brews more fruity? I wouldn't use that word, although I'm sure your taste buds are more developed than mine. Not necessarily, Adam. (laughs) I like the balance. I like the balance of a strong taste and a very earthy taste. Yeah, that's that is my kind of coffee. I absolutely love bold flavors, but I like complexity of flavor, too. I'm not into the fruity ones. That's basically the only kind of coffee I'm not really into. So we just wrapped up the espresso shots. And by the way, check out show notes to see if Adam's espresso shots episode has already dropped. But in that, we kicked off with sort of a high-level 10,000-foot view of what international development is because not everybody knows. And certainly when I was a journalist, Adam, and I'm embarrassed to think about it now, looking back on some of the stories that I did following big natural disasters, I don't think I made a distinction between humanitarian, which is emergency relief and international development. Could you please give our listeners just a very quick overview of what international development is all about? Well, international development, uh, and you're not that far off on here because you're so sharp and I'm sure you saw a lot of it in the emergency relief work that would fall under international development as a part of it. And there are companies that focus on emergency relief for migration issues or hurricanes and tsunamis or civil wars and, and internal conflict. Broader though, international development is, is, is about building the capacity, the competitiveness and the resilience of developing nations. Um, in the developed world, led by bilateral donors such as the U.S. and England and Spain and Sweden, Norway and Germany, they all have an agency that contributes to helping developing countries. And in the older days, development was purely about human development, you know, political, social and, and economic stability. These days, politics have crept in. So sometimes the countries that are chosen or the work that's being done is it has a political orientation. Obviously, now there's a bit of a cold war or battle between China and and the rest of the world in terms of who's going to be investing and reaping the benefits of investing in continents like Africa, countries like South Africa and Kenya and Ghana and, and, and so on. But usually international development is comprised of three to five year projects. And these projects are focused on various needs that a country may have. It could be in their educational sector. It could be in their health sector. It could be in the economy. It could be in policy reform and government capacity, institutional learning, knowledge management. But at the end of the day, international development is about trying to improve the livelihoods of the people in frontier and emerging markets. Yes. And you also, in our espresso shots, gave a great overview of frontier markets being those in countries that are super fragile, that really don't have a level of stability to their economies, their education system, their governance versus the emerging markets, which are those just behind what we call first Am I blanking on this? First world, thank you. First world countries like the United States, Europe, China, and 
India, some other country. I, actually, I don't know. Is India considered first world? Parts well, of it are. Parts of it are. I think emerging markets are, mar- are countries that you've heard of that are considered developing. It was India. It was China. It was Brazil, Russia, countries that have a decent per capita income, a Fiji, a South Africa, a Kenya, a Ghana, Cambodia, Vietnam, places that you know, you've heard of people trade, people travel. Um, it's a bit off the beaten path, but for the adventure traveler, that would be fine. A, a frontier market, when we're talking about Central African Republic or Togo, Burkina Faso, Papua New Guinea, Guinea in Africa, places that people might not go, Mindanao in the island of the Philippines or uh, parts of Indonesia, parts of remote aspects in Southern Asia, although Sri Lanka is quite large, there's country, you know, Bangladesh, perhaps, or Eritrea or Sudan, or countries that are just forming now or reforming. Those are the hardest. Those are countries that do not attract much foreign direct investment. They're looking for aid money, for donor money, for international development, to get them up to a base where then they're on the international platform of, of trade, of investment, of finance, of of innovation. And so you might have developing countries, depending on their comparative or or competitive advantages, might be doing, because of the cost of labor, might be doing some manufacturing, might be becoming a data center or a call center, might have a particular resource. Afghanistan has a tremendous amount of gemstones, as does Pakistan and and other places. Certain countries, it's really just sort of on on a continuum from their poverty level and their literacy level up to where we are here today in the U.S. As you can see, I should have referred to Adam as Dr. Saffer because he also has his Ph.D. in political science. And you, my friends, are getting a master class in international development today. We should also say that international development encompasses for-profit companies, many of which Adam has worked for, been on the leadership of, as well as nonprofit organizations, NGOs, a couple of which I have worked for, including the American Red Cross and Mercy Corps. So, Adam, let's flash back to when you were in college, because I think for our young listeners to get a sense of how your career really unfolded and how you managed to move from having studied mechanical engineering as an undergrad at Cornell into the international development field, it would be interesting for them to get a sense of how one job flowed into the next. So you graduated from Cornell with a mechanical engineering degree. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Absolutely not. In fact, I wasn't sure I wanted to be an engineer, but because uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do, and my father and grandfather were engineers and entrepreneurs, engineering school and in the community and the economy at that time, there was a sort of a shortage of engineers. It was a good, solid bread and butter. If you weren't going to be a doctor or a lawyer, engineering was another profession. Even at Cornell, which was a challenging environment for sure, Uh, I wasn't sure I I even wanted to be an engineer, but by the third year, it was kind of too late. So I carried on with the study. So what was your first job? And do you remember how you got it? 
Oh, sure. I was interviewing like everyone does at the end of school. And I had several job offers as an engineer for companies like Emerson Electric and Air Chemicals and all of the oil and gas people. And then one company came to the school called Schlumberger, which I never heard of. And they do oil well analyses for the oil companies on the rigs. And this was an overseas division. It's a quiet and not very well known, but exceptionally well run company. And they were showing slideshows of people in the middle of the desert working on rigs and then on top of derricks in Alaska and stuck in the mud in the Congo and all sorts of unusual situations that attracted my attention and two other friends of mine. And the three of us interviewed and got jobs with this company, which immediately sent me to France for four months of further training. And then my first post was uh, in Nigeria in 1980. And you worked in the Gabon, in South Africa, Angola, Scotland, and the U.S. And by the time you left after five years, you were a senior field engineer. Around that point, you were thinking about going back to grad school. Why did you decide to get your MBA and you got your MBA from Harvard? I didn't think I'd get into Harvard. I mean, who does? But I knew I wanted to get another degree, mainly two, two main reasons. One is the oil business was starting to uh, go into a the doldrums and things were happening in the mid 80s in the economy that uh, was slowing down the industry. But more importantly, I was an expert in a very, very narrow field. And the only other company that actually did this kind of work was Halliburton. And Schlumberger was the best in the world and still is the best in the world. So I didn't see a whole lot of career options. Again, going back to keeping as many opportunities open as possible. And my next promotion was going to be to move to Paris and, and be in the sales team. And I didn't want to be in the sales team. I enjoy field work. I enjoy meeting people and working in different languages, etc. So going back to get an MBA was sort of like going back to get back on top of the pile where you have uh, a lot of options, a lot of visibility, and a lot of people will see you. And it's sort of a clean your slate start over again thing. The fact that I got into Harvard was just fortunate but I would have gone to other schools. You then pivoted into management consulting and the firm that you joined was focused on waterfront property development. That's a bit of a shift from being out in deserts to suddenly being, you know, in a company working on waterfront property development. You did that for four years. Why did you move from the desert to waterfront property. Yeah, to the ocean. Well, my career path is not linear. I'm a type of person that approaches opportunities with passion. And if an opportunity comes up that it wasn't planned, but it sounds good, I would do it. I wasn't in that much of a hurry to climb up the ladder and be a corporate executive. You know, I wanted to gain experience. And I think a lot of the young people today really think the same way, that it's all about experience rather than assets or things or stuff. So when I left Schlumberger, I happened to find an opportunity without going into it. And I raced sailboats for the U.S. team for a number of months. And I ended up joining the, the team in Spain and sailing in the world championships in Italy and then back to the States and then down to Florida and around Panama to Mexico and then San Francisco, then Hawaii. And then I went to school. So when I finished 
Harvard, again, I'm interviewing with the management consulting firms. That was a very popular career path then, as was iBanking. And I had no real interest in being an investment banker in New York. But then I happened to see an advert in a professional magazine about an opportunity on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, to be a vice president of a, a marina consulting firm. And so I called them up and I was in Boston and we met and uh, lo and behold, I ended up joining that company and moving to England to start that company in Europe. They were very well established in the States. The owners did not want to move. I was very, very much game to move around the world. And so I moved to England and started up Marina Consult UK Limited and then sold that after a few years, stayed with them as a public company director, and then realized this was a great experience, but I couldn't let go of my experience in Africa and with Schlumberger and working in the developing world and working in places where people really, really needed help and were willing to accept it and just the difference you could make. And so that's when I uh, decided to look into the world of international development. I didn't know anything about it until I started to unbelievably surprising to myself, missed being in Africa. And it would be a field that you would go on to spend decades in. Your first move into international development was working for the U.S. government at the U.S. Agency for International Development. You were hired as a project officer to work in the Gambia in sub-Saharan Africa, and you were hired on a two-year contract to manage the finance and private enterprise project. I believe it was in agribusinesses. I'm looking at your at your resume here. Without going into perhaps even this project, I'll just say you then joined a private firm called Development Alternatives International DAI, that's also how it's known. It works implementing a lot of these projects that are funded by the U.S. government. And in particular, it focuses on economic development. You served as a title chief of party in Poland, led a U.S.-Polish government effort supporting fast growth in small and medium enterprises. You then moved to Johannesburg, South Africa for five years as the chief executive officer of a subsidiary of DAI. You raised $300 million in debt investment and trade transactions also for small and medium enterprises in South and Southern Africa. Over and over and over again, you had these various challenges working in countries, not just in Africa, but in Asia and Europe. South America, South Africa, South America, Mid East, all over. I'm going to give you a tough question here. Could you pick a project that you worked on, Adam, that you think is somewhat representative of the type of work that you did to give our young listeners a flavor for what these projects look like on the ground? What are all the moving pieces that you're juggling? as you try to implement one of these large projects? Sure. Because my background was more economic-based, economic development, job creation, there was, there's many projects 
in the world, funded by various donors, including multilaterals like the UN and the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and the African Development Bank, that focus on trade, on trying to improve the economy. Because if you don't improve the economy, the countries never graduate from the donor world. You know, the idea is the journey to self-reliance. The idea is to work ourselves out of a job and not need to depend on foreign concessionary help. And so trade and, ec- and the economy is a big deal. So what we did on one project, which lasted many, many years in South Africa, was called the South Africa International Business Linkages Project, or SABLE. And that was focused on working with small companies that had potential, that wanted to grow, but didn't have the wherewithal, be it finance, be it acumen, be it relationships, etc., And they wanted to grow and create jobs. And then this was a part of the time when there was a Mandela had been let out of prison. Mandela had just finished being president when I went there and then Becky had taken over. So it was an exciting transition. And so you had small black businesses and big white businesses, and they didn't trust each other for lots of reasons. And so the job was to try to bridge that gap, to try to take the risk out of hiring a small, typically black business to provide something and then getting the the black businesses, local businesses to trust and bid on these, knowing in the past that they'd never win anyway, because they had to provide three years of a balance sheet or things they didn't have access to. So the whole job was working with small companies, working with banks, working with big companies and being the honest broker and trying to mitigate the risks each perceived. The large companies didn't think the small companies could deliver and the the small companies didn't think they'd ever get hired by the big companies. And this happens around the world. It's not a black or a white thing. It's an economic difference in using small business and working with the government to procure from small businesses. Same thing goes on in the US. And so we would spend our days finding out what the concerns were from the big businesses and the small businesses, bringing them together slowly, first initially, helping them with some funding so they could buy the raw materials, let's say, to deliver the product or to deliver the service. And once the relationship was made and it worked and we made sure it worked, it was sustainable and it grew. And so we'd work with one group who uh, cut the grass at some of these big hotels and casinos They developed into a whole facilities maintenance, facilities management company that did transportation, that did landscaping, that did the air conditioning. We worked with a lady who had an idea of taking all of the sheets, these very, very fancy hotels, throw out their sheets at a certain point in time because they wash them all the time. She would get the sheets, she would batique them in her own way, and then she'd sell them at the gift shop and make money that way and recycle those sheets. We worked with a gene manufacturer, I won't mention the name, and they wanted to get into the developing world. And this was happened to be in India. They were a US company and, and everybody in India pretty much has a sewing machine. So, but they can't afford Levi's jeans or Lee jeans or designer jeans. So the company made gene kits where they sent the material all cut to the right size and you sewed them together yourself and they were much cheaper and it opened up a whole new profit center for the textile business and people would just buy their size in a package and sew them at home and have what they wanted. So it's really about being innovative and helping and listening. It's a lot of listening, understanding the context and working to try to achieve tangible and measurable goals of improvement. And that can be from maternal health to distance education, to job creation in in a manufacturing, to mining, 
to design and handicrafts. And, you know, you basically manage the project. I think the closest thing to how these things work, it's just a project and you're managing it. There's just a lot of internal and external influences to manage, including your own team, because your own team is often often comprised of different ethnic groups within the country, different languages, although the common language would be English or French typically, and just getting the team to work as as an aligned, collaborative and cooperative unit internally is also part of the job and it's extremely rewarding. Well, you clearly must have done that extremely well. We can see that just in the way that you skyrocketed up in terms of your titles and the various responsibilities that you were given, Adam. What do you think is the best advice you can offer our young listeners about how to be a great leader, how to inspire and build cohesion among multicultural teams? Well, that's a great question. That's a sensational question. It's a difficult one to answer because the contexts are so different. In the old style of command and control management, which my father and grandfather grew up in, does not work now. And and quite frankly, I'm an, I'm almost a dinosaur. So what would work for young people these days might be a little different than from what I'm going to say. Although the U.S. young people are a lot different than the young people in, in South Asia. The cultures are very different. So I think the key to being a good leader is to appreciate the context you're in and learn about the context. And yes, you may be the smartest person in the room in terms of academic credentials and your ability to write and articulate, but you're a a novice in these countries, no matter, I mean, I was in, I've been doing this for a long time and I still learn every day. I make mistakes every day. So the advice I give, and this is in a quote from Asia, and it translates into the strength of the fish is in the water. So what that means to me is you don't have to be a big fish. You don't have to, to be a leader, be the biggest person, the loudest person, the smartest person. What you need to do is understand how to navigate the context, use the water. And to do that, that requires a lot of listening, a lot of learning, a lot of caring, because you want people to understand what they're doing, what's expected of them. Sounds obvious, but that's not always the case. Job descriptions really don't do it. You want people to understand how they work together. So there's a, there's a, a, a one team concept of, Even the person that are doing the accounts payable have the relationship to the people who are working with the companies trying to raise money from the bank who are working with the uh, HR department. Leadership is about empowering and inspiring people in a direction that aligns with their own passions. So again, it's not the biggest or smartest fish. It's understanding the context you're in and learning how to navigate that to get done what you need to get done. Speaking of the context that you were in, I don't usually ask this question, Adam, because it's not usually relevant to most of my guests, certainly not for our listeners to know what it was like or what it's like to live in Dallas or Seattle or New York City. But you were living and working in so many different countries, many of which were incredibly poor, may have been conflict affected, may have had all kinds of infrastructure challenges 
And that's part of the reason that you were there. Could you give us a sense of what the lifestyle is like working in international development as a foreigner living in these different contexts? Yeah, I mean, that's that's why I do this. And again, it's not for everybody, but to compare the average day or social event, let's say, in the developing world to Boston, New York, Philly, San Francisco, it's completely different. The lifestyle, surprisingly, is very comfortable. My wife and I have become professional foreigners. We like being a foreigner. We like being an observer. I'd say the couple of the key characteristics. One is you're going to learn all the time because you're learning about food and language and culture and music and everything's new. So you don't come to a developing country and look for the nearest Olive Garden or McDonald's. You have to be willing to try their ideas of fun, their ideas of nutrition, their ideas of social interaction. The typical, it being an expat, you typically have half of your friends that are other expats, not necessarily Americans, but other people doing similar things or working for some reason you're working there. And when you get together, the common, because a lot of places are either too limited or dangerous to get together to go out to dinner. I mean, you still can, but more and more and more, you would meet at someone's house. You'd be six to 20 people and you'd be three to 15 nationalities. And you sit around the table and share incredible stories and incredible observations about the country you're in and about past countries. Because a lot of us have lived in a lot of countries. The housing is fine. Peace Corps is a different thing. Peace Corps, you really are living at the village level and you're suffering and you're learning. And it's incredibly motivating. I did not do Peace Corps. I didn't even know much about it, but I probably would have enjoyed it. But this as a profession, you're respected in the country very much. And so you you live well, you're typically treated well. Um, You have to have a good sense around you of avoiding certain areas at certain times of day or night, but you have to do that in the U.S. and everywhere as well these days. And you end up finding a lifestyle where you're, you're either working, doing something you enjoy, trying to make a difference, or you're enjoying whatever the country or the town has to offer. You know, it might be on the ocean, it might be in the safari areas, it might be in the desert. All of these offer incredible opportunities. And what you don't spend a lot of time doing is maintaining your lifestyle in terms of you have to pay your mortgage and you have to fix the gutters and you have to put gas in the car and you have to drive here and there because you live. Uh, that's all taken care of. Your housing's taken care of, the transportation's taken care of. And I can go back a minute. The other half of your friendships typically are with the locals and the local residents and going to their homes and going to their children's graduations or weddings or festivals that you'd never see here. It's a a very stimulating environment if you're up for adventure, (laughs) if you're the type that looks for doing something a bit out of the box. This is a great way to expand your comfort zone. So my kids now who went to 12 schools before they went to college and lived in 10 countries or had visited 10, 15 countries have a very wide comfort zone in terms of of people and color and religion and activities, much different than, not better, just different than the people that have grown up in the States. I come back to the States once a year and I see my friends and, you know, we're talking about the Red Sox. 
we don't talk about the Red Sox overseas. And it's, it's, a, it's a whole different environment that most people don't understand. And to get an understanding of it, there's articles, there's societies, there's organizations, there's professors, there's people that you can talk to who have done this before, who have made a career out of it to see if it's something that would be interesting to you. And if you are an adventurous type, wow, I can't imagine a more exciting industry to get into. One final question before I pivot to the two final questions I try to ask all of my guests, Adam, and that is you have worked at very senior levels in international development, and yet you never actually studied international development. Has that been a handicap at all to you? And if not, why not? I wouldn't say it has been a handicap. You know, after coming back from Africa and I went to Harvard for my MBA, I did take some courses in development, one or two. There weren't many then. There's more now. They were helpful. But really, the basic skill sets of what I do is raising money is to understand finance. If you're in healthcare, you want to understand, you know, one aspect of healthcare, if it's maternal health, neonatal health, distribution of medicines, of vaccines, or just doing analysis of populations and their health status. Most academic degrees aren't geared to this. There's a school called Thunderbird. I don't think it's in operation anymore. I'm not sure. But that was the only place that focused on international development, but didn't have the recognition of, of it, let's say, an Ivy League school. And so I think better than studying international development would be studying the sector of interest to you. I was interested in business, so I studied business. And that's how I got into this industry was to be an advisor to businesses. But you might be studying Michigan State University and Cornell have very, very sophisticated agricultural When I was at Cornell, I didn't understand why there even was an ag school. I was thinking, well, are these rich people coming to Cornell going to be farmers? I mean, I didn't get it. Agribusiness, agriculture, food and nutrition, biggest industry in the world and so, so important for the planet. And so I've spent the last 15 years plus focusing on agriculture. I don't know anything about agriculture then. Now I do. Now I understand the cycles. I understand the need for good inputs. I understand the need for good agronomic practices. But I didn't need it at school. And then because it's such a different environment, it's not figuring out what type of automatic photo-operated pivot from Hawaii to irrigate your crops. I mean, that doesn't apply in places that don't have power, that have unbelievable rainy seasons and then dry seasons. So I, I think it's really more advisable to obviously follow what interests you, but don't worry about getting a degree in international development. But if you're interested in working with governments or public policy or urban development, focus on the sector. It has application in developing. Great advice. Thank you. All right. Two final T4C questions. Could you share a time in your professional life, Adam, when you struggled? Maybe you even failed at something that you were doing. And the important thing here is less about the failure and more about how you persevered and whether there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Well, I certainly have failed. I mean, I failed all the time. 
this is a challenging industry and, and, and a lot of the failures were uh, unavoidable or external. You know, when, when Ebola hit Liberia, I was quarantined and had to leave Liberia. So that company failed because I got kicked out because of the disease in Mongolia. When the commodity markets crashed, they stopped mining. And a lot of my work was working with mines. And then I've been fired. And a lot of people have a real ego issue with admitting that. But I have been fired more than once. And was it for some egregious thing? No. No, it was due to a clash with my, with my boss. Sometimes, I w- in one case, I was with DAI. I was there 10 years on the board. And I was let go for no reason, really, except that the president and CEO was retiring soon, a very close friend at the time. And myself and one other person were the likely candidates to take over the company. And the other person who they selected, who has done a great job, was seriously competing with me, had a different approach, and and basically manufactured a situation that got me to be terminated by the current friend President and CEO, amazingly, it was never, I just couldn't believe it because I was so much part of that company. So my first thought was, I'm never going to get another job. My first thought was, I'm never going to make this much money again. My first thought was, my credibility has been ruined, but that's not what happened. So what you do is you carry on. You carry on and you follow, you do, you know, you know who you are. Certainly, there's corrections to be made. I was not very sophisticated politically, internal, hence my preference for working in the field and not at the home office, because there always is politics, and I prefer to be just focused on the job. So for most of my life, my bosses, for all of my life, I've never had my boss at the same time, which is good for me. So there's a level of autonomy, yet I still always had a boss, and other than when I was running my own business, like now and in other times. But the key is not losing faith in what you're doing. You might be learning about the environment in a particular company that you no longer want to be part of or an environment in a particular industry or country. But you carry on, you maintain your network. I think the most important thing in carrying on is to value, and I don't want to anticipate your next question, which I don't know what it is, but I would like to comment on the importance of, especially now, starting in in undergraduate school and throughout the rest of your life is there's classroom and there's learning, technical, analytical, but there's building your network with your your colleagues, with your classmates, with your professors, with your advisors, in your teams. That is going to be, that has what service me for my whole life. I don't think I, I ever got a job from a job ad except after Harvard. I got a job from talking to people who knew me, who know me, and that I was looking for this or that, and I would get picked up and I would get a referral. I'm right now looking at a couple of opportunities, either for board work or consulting work or startups that I might join. And it's all through the network. And that's what kept me going. And I communicate a lot with those people. And every year I send out Christmas card that probably goes to four or 500 people now. I also send out a a quote, as you know, Andrew, every week I send out my weekly quote to a couple hundred people. They love it. I enjoy doing it. It keeps me in contact with these great people from all over the world that I I don't really have time to call every week. Um, So networking got me through with perseverance and uh, faith. 
trusting the process, faith that I know there's need, I know there's certain problems I can definitely contribute to and add value in solving and not get discouraged. Oh, such incredible advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. Final question, Adam. If you could go back to school, back to Cornell, Mm -hmm. and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Another sensational question, because people justify their actions and don't like to admit that maybe that was a bad decision or maybe that was the wrong thing to do. I try, I'm trying to be objective with you here, Andrea. And while I'm not an engineer anymore, although I have a degree, I'm obsolete. I probably would still do that again because it gave me a great basis for solving problems. And I was pretty good at it. So, you know, it interested me more than studying comparative religion or, or a liberal arts degree. But the biggest advice, and again, I kind of did anticipate the question, of course, my biggest advice would be to pay more attention to my out-of-classroom activities in terms of building my network at any age. And so get to know your professors and those that you click with. It's obviously not everybody, but where you find some chemistry and you're not sure, you know, I would say don't be afraid to ask for help. Spend more time networking and, and building relationships that will last past that course or past that school year or past that time at Cornell and try to differentiate. Differentiation is a, is a key. Do Be willing to do and try things that are outside your comfort zone. I mean, I, I did that, but I could have done more, I guess. And look, look for unusual opportunities. Think back, even in, as you're a young person, think back at what has made you times where you're the happiest. Why were you the happiest at those times? And if you're into camping or biking, or if you're into sport, or if you're into reading, or if you're into art, you know, whatever it is, go into the town where the school is and maybe volunteer at a, I I was very interested in older people. So I would volunteer at nursing homes and, and tell them stories of Africa and bring them slideshows. And they would tell me stories of their life. You know, I met the court stenographer through the Sacco Vanzetti case. She was 104 and she told me about the whole thing. So it's a differentiation is why I got into Harvard. It wasn't that I was the smartest person who applied. There's, there's 10 times as many qualified people that apply to that institution that get in. But I had a background of working in, in Angola and, you know, and being shot at in Nigeria and being part of the apartheid movement in South Africa. I mean, I was just different. And that's what helped. And I think not only did it help differentiate me, but it was enjoyable. It, it made me who I am today. So I would advise students to build your network, ask for help, think about your peripheral vision, you know, not just straight ahead. Think about what's going on around you or around the world and what what excites you. What would you really want to contribute to or be part of? Because it takes proactiveness to find it, but there are opportunities out there for everybody, which would be the cross-section of your interests and your skills. And I'm only just doing that the past 10 20 years. But for the first part of my career, it's all skills. It's all skills. I got to get the ladder. But don't forget about your interests and you'll probably meander into the right, into the right ballpark eventually. Well, that is exactly, Adam, what I preach about on LinkedIn and mm-hmm. on this podcast about identifying your interests, even if you don't know what your professional passions are, because most 
college students don't actually know what their professional passions are until quite a bit later Mm -hmm. in their life and lean into your strengths. And that is a formula that will serve you well. I want to thank you so much, Adam. I said this was going to be a masterclass and you did not disappoint. Thank you so much for making time, whether it was for Kona coffee or Brazilian coffee, whatever it was your wife decided to buy in the market. This was such a wonderful, wonderful time for coffee experience. And I want to thank you on behalf of the Time for Coffee community for making Time for Coffee with me today and just really making my day. Thank you, Andrew. Well, the the feeling is mutual. And I know that based on experience I've had with my own children, knowing what to do at a young age is extremely difficult. And there are a lot of external pressures to know the answer to that and get your job. And if I may, you may have to edit this out, but the, the term get your shit together. What does that really mean? Does that mean get a job, work for a job? You don't like it, but you've got a job, you've got a paycheck, and you're on the path. I don't know if that applies anymore. Having your stuff together is more about, I think, following, not trying to find out what you really enjoy and what your passions are and what you're, what you're good at. Usually what you're naturally good at turns out to be your passions. I um, mean, we're all naturally expert at something, everyone. And having it together is about trying to follow that, that thought, that passion, that interest in a way that is viable. And that will require oftentimes, as personally and for my kids, turns, a lot of turns, sometimes a U-turn, but you're not stopped. You're moving and you're getting to where you want to go. And now I can say as a, an old guy, I'm very happy with what I'm doing now and where I am. And no, I'm not financially secure. I'm not rich in monetary terms, but I am in terms of what I appreciate, who my friends are, what I do and what I look forward to doing. So thank you, Andrew. I think what you're doing here with the T4C is is unique and valuable. And uh, the more people that hear stories like mine and other people who have ended up doing things they never really expected to be doing without the the classic background or the classic this or that. As I said, everybody is really good at something and can think about what you really enjoy and sort of head that direction and you'll be fine. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.